and welcome to another episode of Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. If you're enjoying these stories, follow or subscribe so that it's easy to get to them. And please feel free to share Chuck's stories with family and friends. Immediately following our story, we're going to have a little chat with Chuck. And yes, his sisters are back here this week again. Without any further ado, here's Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. This one is called Ricky Cramshaw Had Venus Flytrap Eyes. Now, Ricky Cramshaw had eyes that looked to me like Venus flytraps. His eyelashes pointed down and up instead of up and down. It looked like they closed in on each other. Uncle Mal had a magazine that showed a picture of a Venus flytrap plant. He read us the ad, Rid your home of annoying houseflies with the amazing flytrap. Well, this is it. It's the Venus flytrap. It eats them up. It gobbles them. There was a list of all the diseases that houseflies could carry. He never sent away for one. He said flies were a fact of life, and he worried about what the plant would want to eat in the wintertime when there were no flies around. As for me, it was enough just to have a friend who had eyes that looked like fly traps. The Cramshaws, they lived across the street in a huge house piled up on the side of the throughway cliff. It was three stories high, and it looked like two houses built off of each other. Altogether, it was a great mass of tumble-down building parts looking over the throughway. The cyclone fence was just an arm's length from the front porch. When an empty 18-wheeler tractor-trailer bounded up the throughway, their vibrations shook up the cliff, across the porch, and rattled the front windows. From their front porch, from the rooftop, you could, you could see almost all the way to Suffern. And we would sit up there watching, and when the trucks drove by down below, you could feel the porch roof vibrate and tickle your backside. Eventually, the throughway shook loose the storm windows and they fell out. But the real loss was the heavy beveled plate glass that dropped from the front door of the house. Its crash was heard even above the throughway traffic. At that time, some fellows were over the fire hall remodeling the bathrooms, so they gave Albert Cramshaw the old wire-screened milk glass from the men's room door, the one that had the word men etched into it. (laughs) For some time after that, the Cramshaw's front door greeted one in such a manner that Walt would complain that when he went over there, he felt like he needed to go to the bathroom. (laughs) This was short-lived, though, because it, too, eventually fell. There were more Cramshaw's than I could keep count of. They all lived in the house, and somehow they were all related to one another. We lived across the street from them, and for a year or so before I actually met them, I, well, it wasn't me. It was Ricky. He made the first gesture. Their front yard, a circular driveway with a large tree in the middle, rose up above the street. At the end of it, pointing out over the bank, was a dilapidated old wooden yacht. This great blue and white structure, it must have been a dream of Albert Cramshaw, something to rebuild in his spare time. Albert was quite the hobbyist, and forever dragging home a worthy rotting prize to add to his handyman's list. I noticed this grand old boat back in the days when Heebie-Jeebie still lived on the first street house with Graham Holder. Its bow was pointing out over the street, as if ready to cast off into the stormy seas of Hillburn. And it was one morning when I walked around to the front of the house into the street that I heard a voice, like from an old seafarer, and up on the deck of the ship, a round-faced boy waved urgently at me and shouted, Ahoy! I'll I'll toss you a line, mate! I walked into the street, and I looked up, and I stared at him. He was an active little sailing man, skipping about shouting orders at an unseen crew, and then over the side came an old ring float tethered to a rope. It struck the road, bounced, and knocked me flat. 
The seamen shouted for me to grab onto the lifeline. I was dazed. I could all barely sit up. And when he saw my condition, well, Ricky Cramshaw took action and dove in to swim out and save me. Moments later, we swam across the dust in the street and dragged ourselves up onto a reef, actually a cut granite wall. And from the very beginning, flights of imagination for Ricky Cramshaw were a necessary part of survival. Not unlike heebie-jeebie man, he mixed what was real with what he imagined, such that one always affected the other. As in the time at a story-reading circle in the Suffren Library, when a well-meaning children's librarian encountered Ricky's sense of rationale. Once, she said dramatically, there lived in the forest an old witch. Where'd she come from? Uh, uh, what, what do you mean? That was her mistake. She shouldn't have responded with a question. Uh, I mean, the, the witch. How'd she get into this forest? She didn't get there. She lived there. But she must have come from somewhere. Where, where do her folks live? <clears throat> it's it's just a story, son. That don't make it nothing. Even a witch has got to come from someplace. All right, all right. Once there was a witch who came from another place, and we don't know where it is, <laughs> and it's a dark forest. That, what What's the place? Hoboken, New Jersey, okay? All right. Fine. Now the people of the village told their children never to go. What village? Look, kid, I'm just trying to read a story, okay? I don't know what damn village it is. It's just somewhere, okay? He rubbed his nose. But there's got to be more to it than that. Yes, there is. There's a great deal more. If you'll just be quiet, I can read it to you. This isn't one of them witches are bad because they eat children things, is it? She snapped the book shut. We all jumped. Then you already know the story. Fine. Why don't you tell us the story? He stood up. Well, um... You know, first, you know, I don't care much for them bad witch stories because, you know, we think my gram is a witch, but she'd be a good one. The librarian had enough. She grabbed his hand. She dragged him through the library until she got to his mom. And she told his mom that he was being disruptive. And Mrs. Cramshaw scolded Ricky for being disruptive. And then she turned to the librarian and scolded her for being rude. All in all, this was an average Cramshaw encounter. We never got to the end of the story. An episode with the Cramshaws had a, a way of escalating, like the time we tied a rope swing to a tree branch to drop off of Walt's front porch roof. The houses on First Street were set against a gradual slope such that the west side of the front porch was about 9 feet high, while the east side was about 13 feet high. And from there, the little side yard continued to drop down. Ricky and I had our eye on a particular branch that stuck way out. It was maybe 11 or 12 feet off the ground and off the side of the house. Dougie, his little squirrely younger brother, whose pale complexion and shock of almost white blonde hair offered him a, an angelic presence, was by far the best tree climber of us. So we tied our rope around his waist and sent him up the trunk. And he went for it. He was barefooted, and he scratched his way up the tree like a raccoon. He then made his way out onto the center of the branch in question. With us holding one end of the rope, Doug was to drop down the other side, only his enthusiasm took over and he leapt off the branch. I lost my grip and Ricky was violently jerked into the air and Dougie met him halfway down. In my years with the Cramshaws, I have witnessed all manner of violence and trauma and turmoil. The formula is much the same. The sudden shock of agony and the pain followed by amusement over life's curious adventures. Nonetheless, Dougie had had enough of this one, so he lost interest in our project and walked off. 
Now with our rope secured, Ricky and I climbed up onto the porch roof and assessed the route. From the Dutch gutter in which we stood, looking out to the bottom of the trees and to the throughway beyond, the whole scene, it, it seemed too much. And I said, I don't know, Rick. But no, he was never one to back away from a challenge. He volunteered to swing first, so I agreed. He took the rope into his hands. He grinned and he leapt off the roof. Problem was, we hadn't considered the length of the rope to the ground. <laughs> the rope was too long. Ricky hit the yard like a rock, and his momentum dragged him face down across the yard. Still clutching the rope, he drew back and fell onto his backside. And from where I stood, I could see his entire front was smeared with grass green. He lay still for a moment, the rope bobbing about him, and then a bubble of agony rose up from his ruddy round face and wailed into the sky back at me. But with the assurance that I would go next, he pulled himself together, he gathered himself up, sniffing all the way he climbed back up onto the roof. I, of course, had the benefit of his mistake to guide me. I hitched the rope pretty clear, pretty high as I figured, put a knot in it, and when I left off the roof, the drop was a blur of movement. It was so fast. It was like wind. And I saw a yard, road, throughway, trees, and I crashed into some branches. And then everything was still. I felt myself gripping the rope, but apparently I was now horizontal. There were leaves all wrapped around me. I was in the tree. I heard Ricky say, Chuck, where are you at? In the tree. Well, wiggle a bit. I shook my legs, and suddenly everything was a blur again. Throughway, road, yard, porch, screen, ricky, roof, blue, sky, and a moment of stillness followed by a descending repeat of the same. Roof with ricky, yard, road, throughway, trees, and again I smashed into the branches and was stuck. This time when you do it, let go of the rope. I'll catch you. I wiggled myself, and shoo, everything was a blur. Throughway, yard... Road, porch, screen, I let go too soon. And like a cannon, I shot through the porch screen, blew into the furniture on the porch, slid all the way across to the other side, gathering up the outdoor furniture in my wake. When the sound and movement finally stopped, I was on my back and staring from whence I came at a huge hole torn in the screen. And then Ricky's head dropped upside down, as it were, into the opening, his hair hanging loose, his face filled with excitement. My turn next! <laughs> We gathered up the furniture, none the worse for the wear. Then we sat on the front porch step and waited for the outcome. I counted on being in trouble for this one. But there was nothing to compare it to. I had no idea what the impact would be. We sat waiting for someone to come along, and finally someone did. Walt drove down the street in his truck, and he pulled up to the house. He got out, and he came around the back of the vehicle. He checked on something. He closed the back rear door. And then he walked up to where we were. He stepped around us. We looked at him. I was entirely incapable of knowing what would happen next. Ricky shifted on his bottom. Walt started across the porch, and we heard him stop walking. We turned around, and we saw him staring at the gaping hole in the screen. Slowly, slowly he walked toward it, and he looked out to the throughway beyond. He spoke softly when he spoke. He said something like, I'll be damned. And then he went into the house. Ricky turned to me and said, I love Walt. <laughs> oh, 
That's the thing. I've said this before, too, but I, you know, you just, you're right back there. It's kind of neat, isn't it, to have somebody in the family that just remembers, and everybody's memory varies a bit because that's the nature of the of memory. I know in my own family when I'm saying something, someone will say, no, 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 I said that. You didn't say <laughs> well, that. Well, you did this before. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. something like that. And I'm like, well, okay, well, maybe, you know, whatever. But uh, or, or as Mark Twain once said, nothing so ruins a good story as the truth. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it's, uh, it's just great to, you know, there's just little things that you say around the story and the setup of the scene that bring you right back there. You, you can know? picture it. Yeah, yeah, you can picture it. Two okay. kids sitting on the porch. Hole in the screen. Yeah, <laughs> nervous, wondering who's what, what's going to happen when they come home and see this. R- Ricky wanted to do the swing the way I did so he could jump through the hole in the screen. Yeah. He didn't, huh? No, no, I, I wouldn't let him. That plan. <laughs> it was yeah. starting to occur to me this was not a good plan. <laughs> yeah. Now, does Ricky know that you're, I, I know you give him a slightly different name, right? But does he know that you're talking about? His sister, Luann. Remember Luann Merkin? She follows the Facebook ones. I don't know if she's following these, but she comments sometimes. So the Cramshaws are a composite of essentially the Lelix, the Merkins, and the Jenkins. Okay. So the adventures that, that I talk about with the Cramshaws mostly are with me and Ricky, but all the things that manifest are really all the things that poured out of these three family lines that were pretty much gathered in that big house. Oh. Yeah. So there was a lot of stuff that they did that I may attribute to one or the other because I'm not getting into all of their names and all of their yeah. stories. And and I changed their name like I did Cindy, you know, Cindy Maloney, you know, yeah. over on 3rd Street because that's an indication that that person is probably playing or in my mind going to play a bigger role, which means I'm really going to elaborate on some of these things and it's not fair, you know, for that person. You guys, it doesn't mean that you're my family, so you're stuck with me, but yeah. So he, he mentions you guys by name. Yeah. 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 Bam. Just like that. Yeah. Yeah. We're fair game. I've mentioned (laughs) Joey. I've mentioned you in the Facebook stories. Yeah. I don't mind. What the heck? <laughs> a little bit of fame right there. I'll tell you what. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I have such a unique name. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, it's... yeah, and people will ask, and say, who, who is Muffin again? That's Chuck's sister. That's a... Or the dog. Why do they name her or the Muffin? Dog. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get to the part where I got a dog and named it after her. That's that's a fun part, too. Oh, man, yeah. you've got to be kidding me. That's in 64, <laughs> and, and in the Facebook things, I'm only into 62. So Yeah, yeah. I remember Muffin, the person, wasn't all that happy that Muffin and the dog. Well, then Maureen got a dog and named it Muffin also. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, when I went up to Nova that's Scotia. That's not right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's not fair. And actually, when when we had the dog named Mike, yeah. Uncle Tommy came to visit, and he said, "Oh, Mike, huh? We're going to name our next dog Chucky." <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. So Muffin named her dog Muffin. Maureen named Maureen. her dog Muffin. Maureen named yeah, her dog yeah. Muffin. Right. And then it got run over. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh my god! But my my favorite part about being Muffin was that very early on. I was um, I was at a family gathering, and the two Schlaeford children, Kelly and what's the other one's name? Well, all right, there's Mary, there's Kathy. Uh, Mary's two daughters. They were both they were both little, and I was doing Irish dancing at that point, and I was showing them some steps. It was evening time, and I was showing them steps, and they were very interested in it. 
And then, as it turned out, their mother, Mary, put them in Irish dance classes. And um, a couple of years after that, I was at another gathering, and this little girl, I don't know which one it was, I think it was Kelly, was showing me her Irish dance steps. And we were dancing together. And then all of a sudden, somebody maybe called to me or something, and she said, you're Muffin? (laughs) <laughs> and I think I had become like a figure in her brain yeah, sure. right, right, because right. I was the first one who did Irish dancing. Yeah, right. Yeah, You're right. a muffin? Yeah, well, that's oh. the name that everybody remembers. Right. And, yeah. Oh, they're such great kids, too, those two. They were just... Yeah, uh, yeah, they were adorable. Yeah, really the, something. That, that reminds me of when I was doing the camp stories for years. Kids asked, can, can we go on a field trip to Hilburn? And the stories are all about Hilburn and they're real places and everything. I said, all right, we'll, we'll do that. And we got the camp to do it, and we brought a bus to Hilburn, and we got out of the bus, and we walked around the Fountain Yard, and there's stories about Fountain Yard, and that's where Cindy Maloney lived, you know, and walked over the street, and that's that's uh, where uh, Ricky Cramshaw lived. Oh, that Uncle Mal lived over there. You know, they're all through. Where's your house? I said, well, it's down there. Can we go down to it? Well, all right, but I hadn't warned Walt and Tessie. So we go down, and Walt comes out onto the porch because there's Chuck with all these children. And I said, these, these kids, um, they'd like to meet you. And he said, oh? I said, that's Walt. They went, oh, the Walter. He's the Walter. <laughs> He's the Walter. And so Walt said, Tessie, come out of here. you got to see. The Tessie's coming. Yeah. And, and then she came out. And they went, oh, the Tessie. And it, was, it was the weirdest thing. You know, they, were, they were actually seeing the embodiment. So then we decided they get to, to see the house only five at a time. And I had like probably 40 or 50 kids. So the counselors take little groups of five at a time through the house. And Walt and Tessie were ecstatic because they kept pointing to things that they knew. The kitchen <laughs> that got rebuilt. Oh, this kitchen used to look different. And they could even talk about, you know, whatever yeah. this, whatever stuff I told them. So they all pile into the backyard. And I thank my folks. And I go in the backyard. But my, just Tessie, she's in there. And she's thrilled that she got called the Tessie. She keeps repeating that. And Walt is in the backyard sitting at the... Uh, at his garage, telling a story. And he's got all of these kids sitting on the ground because they know he doesn't say too much, so they got to listen. And he said a lot. He actually got, got into it, tell, tells a story. And they listened with rapt attention. And he was so taken with that, he said, well, what do you want to do now? Like, <laughs> let's do something. And one of the kids said, let's have some of your homemade root beer. And he had a bottle. Oh, sure. So we got cups, and we go over to the table. And you know how he would tap it to open it slowly to let off the, the, the gas, as it were, to, you know. So tip, And he didn't do this intentionally, but it looked perfect. Puts a big bottle of root beer on the table, comes over with a 10-penny nail and his fire axe to tap the nail. <laughs> so, wow! You know, and they're looking at this, and yeah. they're saying, see, I told you it was real. I told you this was true, because, you know, whatever I said. But now yeah. they, you know. <laughs> now they're part of it. And they, yeah, tap, sure. and they taps it, and the little crown of the, the cap bends up just a little bit, and it sprays out <laughs> as if he planned it. And they all get bits of root beer in their faces, the ones who were closest. So this was, they were ecstatic. And then there were yellow jackets everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. And somehow nobody got stung, but we had to move quickly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and well, they even loved that. They even went back loving that. <laughs> well, my, my relatives, they, my father-in-law is 87 years old, going on 40. He's this amazing high-energy guy. 
and he loves these stories. And, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah, he's a big oh. fan up in uh, up in Vermont. Right. So we're I'm I was just up there, and uh, his all his brothers and sisters are there, Allison and Irving and and everybody. And by the time I'm done, they're all asking me to show them how do I get this on my on my phone on the webcast and everything. Tell them what town that is. It's in Vermont. It's Poultney, Vermont. Mm-hmm. It's just I would say south and a little bit west of Rutland, mm-hmm. uh-huh. but. You're kind of becoming a legend in that <laughs> because everybody, sometime. everybody yeah. knows Ernie. Everybody, right. yeah, he's and like the he mayor. He talks it up all the time. They're they're really enjoying it. The two stories that you told, uh, one was Second Street, the other one was Christmas 1956, mm-hmm. where you really just feel like you're in the room. You yeah, know? yeah. The, the the Christmas 1956 is the one where. They wouldn't give me electric tr- trains like don't you had. Don't nobody talk. But I said, don't nobody talk, because they all started talking at the same time. It's that story. Yeah. And uh-huh. and in that story, you guys keep showing up and playing these sort of accompanying roles to the to the atmosphere of the thing. It's 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 nice. I don't know yeah. if you heard that one. It was a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, the stories drive me nuts sometimes, because I remember them slightly differently. Like, yeah. I remember the Christmas story, but it was in the first street house. Nope, oh, I oh no, I house. remember in 2nd Street, but I remember that the problem was the the trains were in a box wrapped in a And he thought they Christmas. were going to be out. Yeah. 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 Oh. And we were all trying to tell him, open up, open the package. Yeah. And he was so, don't nobody talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going through crises. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. Yeah. I was uh, one day talking to a law enforcement friend of mine, and he said, if you are questioning people at a thing and all the stories are the same then you know it's fake yeah yeah the witnesses all have to be so if all the witnesses are the same you know that they've you know rehearsed the story yeah 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 Yeah, the tough thing with uncle mal was he was hard not to like because he was so engaging and as well i'm doing it with the facebook things uh, as i learned he's flawed with prejudice and and as that starts to become more apparent the great thing about him was he let me talk to him about it. It's tough when a person that you respect is flawed, and then you realize, well, that's what humanity is. It's flawed, and you find a way to, to get through it. And so with Mal, I eventually, especially as, as I got much older, we talked so frankly about prejudice and about his issues. And and, and he, he didn't quite say, well, I've been stupid, but he would often say, well, I've been wrong. And and that was a lot coming that from That took him. a lot. Yep. Yeah. I remember, and I was very impressed, towards the end of his life, when I think he was bedridden, of all the people that he knew, in my mind, you spent the most time with him. Yeah, I did. everyone. Yeah. And listened to him and talked to him. And I thought, that really, really impressed me. The two men in my life were at Walton Mount, you know, my whole growing up years. But I saw their dynamic like you were talking before, all the time. Yep. And that d- dynamic got repeated with Walt and Frankie. Yep. Yes. That's why it was such a good, a good match, moving Frankie in there yeah, when, when Walt, Walt was, needed yep. not to live alone. That was Frankie so interesting. Moved in. yeah. And Walt was just totally familiar with him. Mm-hmm. You know, he d- and like they were Walt. so different. But yep. there was, Frankie was very much like Mal. I thought yeah, that was. was so fitting after Chucky spent time with Mal, and then Frankie spent time with Dad. Yep. Yeah. Now, one time we were at, at his house when he had the hospice and he had the bed in the living room, 
and I'm sitting there with him, and he starts to talk about the Chesapeake Bay, pointing to the mantle, and he's saying, look at that goddamn water, it's smooth as, smooth as glass, look at that water, it's smooth as glass, and it's, it's the bay, it's a big bay, but look at, look at the way it is, and he keeps saying it to me, and he's starting to describe little boats on it, Evelyn comes into the room, and she says, Mal, Mal, that's a mantle. You're not in Chesapeake. You're in Hilburn, Mal. You're in Hilburn. And she shook her head and she walked back to the kitchen. And he looked at me and said, where would you be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's this quote that I keep on my phone. It's from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And it says, if we could reach the secret heart and history of our enemies, we should find in each one's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. And it's so true, you know. I mean, there's nobody that hasn't felt pain. You know, you have to kind of think about that and forgive. That's that's why you have to, you should focus on the samenesses, not the differences. Yeah, very true. And that's what I think you did with with Mal. You're as non-racist as anybody I know, but you were able to communicate. When he was in the hospital last time, and he was, he was pretty much comatose, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at the cards, because, you know, you're there, you know, and you start looking at the cards, and there were some cards that had long passages written into them. The cards from family, Hallmark did the greetings, maybe love, or take care, or get well, and the cards that had long passages in them were from the names Van Dunk, De Vries, De Grote, Nan, Jennings, Powell, these are all the non-white families in Hilbert. And there was so much understanding and sincerity in these, in these cards. And Mal, you know, he was a badass racist and expressed it. And yet, that tells you something. Something more was going on there. I love what Michelle Obama said when they got to the White House. She said, I'm very happy to be here. My people built this building. That's right. And that was true. The White House was built by slaves. Yeah. And what an interesting thing to say. Right. Before you get into any other opinion. Oh, yeah. 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 It was a stirring thing. Oh, yeah. Black people built the White House. She's a, a proud black woman. Yeah, yeah. One last thing I want to anyway, ask, this is just before we, we wrap, your memories of Popstead. Chuck obviously had a really kind of a neat relationship with him. But what was, any any memories that you have that, that stand out? Of old out Grandpa Popstead. I remember, you, you're, you're going to recognize this because of the hat. I loved the way he smelled. <laughs> I really did. It was, that's, that's I can, if you I smelled it again, yeah, yeah. I would, I would uh, think it was Grandpa. To, to me, it was cigar, cigars, tobacco, and chocolate. It was the two together. Oh, and remember in the living room. He had a spittoon. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember his, his, just his aroma. Somewhere, it was wonderful. Somewhere I have that spittoon. Uh-huh. I actually yeah. have it, but I, don't, I think it's in storage. I don't think I have it here to show you. It's been yeah. cleaned. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I certainly Maybe hope. not. <laughs> My memory of him is um, I remember him when he was in the coffin, you know, and um, he always had this mustache that was always yellow. Right. And... When I saw him in the coffin, somebody had cleaned it. Oh. And it was so jarring. Which like, means they got it wrong. They, yeah. You know, yeah. It's not grandpa. Yeah. yeah. They, oh they, it was a white mustache. 
Yeah. How interesting. That, yeah. Wow. I have a really f- firm memory of that. That's a really vivid memory yeah. of, of being shocked at the sight old, of him. How old would you have been? That would have been like 1957, 58. You would have been an, a, an adolescent, no doubt. Yeah. We you were, would have been in high school. We were, yeah, Junior, we were, we were I mean, older. 13, 14, freshman, 14, maybe. something yeah. like that. Yeah. I th- I, I don't remember when they died. Yeah, was that the first loss that you experienced? Loss of life that, the, of someone close? Kylie. No, she saw she Grandpa Kylie. Right? Well, oh. I didn't, but I didn't know Grandpa Kylie. But I, Joan, I you remember did. almost nothing of him. Yeah, you remember him though. Yeah. I have one memory of him actually running and jumping in his lap in a chair that had arms. Oh, oh, really? That's my only memory of him. What was he like? My memory of him was that he was a positive. You know, he was. I have all these positive memories of men. Yeah. Um, like Joe Schlafer. I have very positive memories of him. Oh, he was a sweet guy. Yeah. <laughs> a good guy. What a heart. What a really, what a good yeah. heart that yeah. guy had. But uh, Grandpa, all the pictures I see of Grandpa Maurice Kiley, he loves his kids. He's like down with them when they were little kids, and he's holding them up and everything. And he's, you know, he just seems to really enjoy them. And when he was younger... Dating Grandma Kylie, what a handsome guy. Yeah, they were both good looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were a terrific looking couple. And and I I got the impression that they posed for the camera a lot. You know, they they knew they were beautiful and they. Right, yes. As opposed to Pop Stead, who could give a shit if you took a picture. (laughs) Yeah, I remember going to his gas station too. Mm He had a gas station. I have a picture of him at the gas station. I right, I love that yep. picture. Yep. I remember going there and getting soda. We got we got soda when we went there. And there were all these bunk beds in there because the truckers would sleep there. Oh, really? And wow. then when we when we moved to the house on 2nd Street, we got one of those sets of bunk beds. Mm. Terry and I got one um, from the gas station, and Walt painted it with... With wood grain. Oh, nice. <laughs> the typical wall thing. Now, do you remember... It was metal. Do you, yeah. do you remember Charlie Reinauer? No. Well, do you, you, you know that Reinauer's truck stop was in Mawa. You do remember that, no? No. No. Okay, Charlie Reinauer was a, a, a pump jockey for Pop's Dead. Uh-huh. And he was also a guy always thinking about, how can you become rich? How can you get a stake in, in life? And he was always reading these little paperback things about you know getting rich and doing something. And it occurred to him that Popstead let the truck drivers sleep, park their trucks in the back of the old station, let them sleep in the bunks, but didn't charge them anything. Huh. And he said, oh, for crying out loud, Mal told me this story. For crying out loud, you, you charge them 50 cents, you know. There's money in this. and Where are they going to sleep if they don't have this? And, and the more he pressed him on it, the more uh, heebie-jeebie man got angry. And, really? and eventually fired Charlie Reinauer for pressing him on it. <laughs> and Charlie Reinauer goes down and buys property. He gets a loan for somewhere and buys property on Route 17, sets up this big gas station with a motel, and makes a fortune. Okay. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and, yeah. and Mal used to, we'd be in the truck driving down, said, see down, it's Reinauer's, okay? That you know could what? have been you, that Pop. That could have been you, but Pop didn't want to do that, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Well, this is delightful. 
This yep. is great. Yep. What, so what's the next story? We're, we're now oh. three stories into season two. We're three into season two, and I haven't picked the next ones yet. So you know. So if you want to find out what the next story is, come back next Friday. Oh, that's right. We're still on. I'm sorry. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yep. Come back next Friday. We'll, we'll do more. We'll okay. do more of these. Thanks, Chuck. This Thanks is great. And thank you, Muffin, and thank you, Joan. You're welcome. I can't wait to hear this. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845 764 1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the children's chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The children's chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the children's chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning at 9 a.m., so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story. <laughs>